Right on, right on. You have tuned your shortwave dial to the undercover frequency of Renegade Files, your podcast home for unsolved mysteries, paranormal events, and covert culture. Thanks for following the show. This is going to be one crazy ride. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, broadcasting from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files, episode 23, Men in Black. In the covert culture world of UFOs and government cover-ups, the men in black have become symbolic of the mysterious aftermath many experiencers report. These emotionless operatives have appeared since the earliest days of the modern American UFO phenomenon. One of the first accounts happened on June 27, 1947, less than one month before the watershed moment of the Roswell crash. And these creepy heralds of woe have persisted into the present day, gaining so much attention among the collective consciousness as to garner their own fiction movie franchise. In this episode of Renegade Files, we dig below the pop culture smokescreens of Will Smith movies and cartoons to explore the real-world phenomenon of these most uninvited officials. So put on your Blues Brothers suit, your black fedora, and your Wayfarer shades, crank up the black 1967 Cadillac Fleetwood, and hit the road with your old friend Lex as we drive across the UFO-littered landscape in search of the Men in Black. 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 If you like Renegade Files, help us out by telling a friend about the show. Just send them to therenegadefiles.com, where one-touch buttons open the show on the best podcast apps, or where they can get every episode for free on the homepage. So send your freaky friends to therenegadefiles.com. Cool. In broad terms, the men in black seem to be enforcers of some kind who arrive to harass and intimidate witnesses to UFO events. Their existence is a blend of theories, personal accounts, and some rare photographs. They're thought to be either covert government agents, aliens pretending to be human, or era-jumping time cop robots trying to keep some secret from escaping. The men in black are described as tall, sometimes frail, sometimes strong, always pale, hairless, with strange facial features, a lack of understanding concerning everyday objects such as pens and doors, and they seem to have a preference for black showroom condition cars from the 1950s. They show up after UFO sightings and other strange events, threaten the witnesses to keep them quiet, but rarely if ever follow through and do any actual physical harm that we know of. The men in black phenomenon is remarkably consistent, persistent, and unsettling. 
It's more creepy than conspiratorial, and the ideas behind exactly what's going on here span a wide range of seriously interesting concepts. Researching this case has been really fun. This subject gets deep, dark, and totally bizarre. So let's ride out. Perhaps the first widely published account of Men in Black, or MIBs, happened one afternoon on June 27, 1947, less than one month before the famous UFO crash in Roswell, New Mexico. Harold Dahl, that's D-A-H-L, was collecting driftwood logs for lumber as part of a hardwood conservation program along the eastern shore of Maury Island on Puget Sound in Washington State. He was accompanied by his son Charles, an unnamed mate, and the Dahl family dog. Dahl and his small crew maneuvered their boat around the island, periodically going ashore to gather the wood. Now, this was a decent-sized boat, not a rowboat as is depicted in some reenactments of the event. It was a commercial boat, something like a lobster boat, probably about 30 feet long with a covered wheelhouse, a windshield, and lights and rigging used for doing oceanography research of various kinds offshore. Around midday, Dahl saw six UFOs, which he described as being donut-shaped. Dahl said he could see blue sky through the holes in the round disc centers and that the inside concave walls of the holes looked to have portholes or round vents around their surfaces. So like a giant metal donut with uh, more holes around the inside of the donut hole. These six objects moved silently and Dahl and his son watched as they moved over their boat about a half a mile in the air. Some accounts have Dahl witnessing one of the UFOs crashing, then going to investigate the crash site, but that seems like embellishment to me as far as I can tell. From what I can find, the more official story is that suddenly one of the objects descended to about half of its altitude. It seemed to be having some kind of operational difficulty, and it wavered and swung in an unsteady manner. One of the other ships flew up directly beside the swerving craft, then suddenly sped away. The still sputtering UFO then regained a stable but stationary altitude and began to eject a hail of hot metallic debris from the central portholes described by Dahl. The pieces of junk rained down onto Dahl's boat and the immediate area of the lake around them and some of it on the shores of the islands nearby. Large chunks of what appeared to be hot metal hissed as they splashed down into the cold gray water. Pieces of the slag rained onto the boat to damage the windshield, the wheelhouse roof, and a navigation light. One bit of metal injured Dahl's son as it hit his arm. Another large piece struck and fatally wounded the dog. The raining hot metal was then followed by paper-thin sheets of metallic fabric that spewed from the UFO portholes and fluttered like newspaper pages down onto the lake and the boat. Harold Dahl took several photographs of the UFOs. He also collected some of the metal slag and the thin metallic fabric sheets. This encounter has come to be known as the Maury Island UFO Incident. back on shore, he immediately showed all of this to his employer and part owner of the boat, 
Fred Chrisman. Chrisman, who was also a radio commentator and unsuccessful city council candidate, was extremely skeptical and thought that perhaps the dog and the boy had been injured from some negligence on the part of Dahl. Chrisman visited the location himself, and while there, he too saw the same donut-shaped flying objects. He also collected more of the fallen slag and sent some of it to a friend at the University of Chicago to analyze it. When the university scientist was unable to identify the material, he sent some of it to Ray Palmer. Ray Palmer was the editor of a sci-fi magazine called Amazing Science Fiction, and it seems that this is the way the story made its way to Gray Barker, who published the tale in his 1956 book entitled They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, which is one of the coolest book titles ever. In a remarkable and unexpected twist to this case, I discovered that Fred Chrisman, Dahl's boss, was actually subpoenaed by a New Orleans grand jury and Jim Garrison himself concerning Chrisman's alleged involvement in the assassination of JFK. The only outcome I could find was that Chrisman claimed to have no knowledge of the JFK shooting. The following morning, while Dahl was at home, he was visited by a mysterious figure, a man in a black suit with a black hat and sunglasses and a very distant, awkward demeanor, and who drove a black 1947 Buick. Dahl assumed the man was an agent from one of the federal government's intelligence agencies, but as far as we know, no identification was asked for or offered. The man insisted that Dahl accompany him to a local diner where they sat at a booth and ordered coffee. The strange man never took a sip from or even touched his coffee cup where it sat steaming on the diner table. Dahl listened in amazement as the man recounted the exact events that had occurred to him and his son and their dog in the boat the previous day. The man then said, quote, What I have said is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will want to believe. Speak no more of this incident. If you do, bad things will happen. The man stood up and left. A stunned Harold Dahl sat alone and tried to process what had just happened. The FBI and Project Blue Book investigated the Maury Island UFO incident and both determined it to be a hoax. Check out the link to the Maury Island FBI document in the show notes. It's the type of classic, redacted, grainy spook scan that we Renegade Files agents just love. Whoever Harold Dahl's man in black visitor was, he became entrenched in UFO lore forever. The Herbert Hopkins case. On the night of 11 September 1976, Dr. Herbert Hopkins, a 58-year-old doctor and hypnotherapy expert, was relaxing at home in the rare peace and quiet afforded by his wife taking the kids to a movie in town. Dr. Hopkins had been working as a hypnosis consultant to the police department for an alleged UFO abduction case. 
as he read in his study the phone ring. The man calling said he was with the New Jersey UFO Research Organization and asked to visit the doctor that night to discuss new developments in the case the doctor was working on. Dr. Hopkins agreed, hung up the phone, and immediately went to turn on the porch light so it would light the walkway whenever the visitor arrived. When he switched the light on, he was shocked to see the man already climbing the front porch steps. The doctor saw no car, and even with a car, this was the days long before mobile phones and there were no pay phones for miles. How had the man called, then so instantly arrived? Dr. Hopkins let the man in and was conscious of doing so against his better judgment. The man wore a white shirt, white gloves, and a black suit, tie, fedora, and shoes. He sat as invited in a living room chair, as did the doctor, who realized that he had never asked to see any credentials or even what the man's name was, and once again, Dr. Hopkins was aware of himself complying with this stranger in ways that were out of his own character. Being well acquainted with the effects of hypnosis, the doctor said that this involuntary compliance had the feeling of hypnotic suggestion and that he was doing all of this and almost observing his own behavior rather than controlling it. The man in black took off his hat and placed it on a side table, and when he did, the doctor saw that he was not only bald, but that he had no visible hair whatsoever. No eyebrows, no beard, or even the lightest hint of stubble. His skin was ghost-white, He also had no lips, but wore bright red lipstick painted on to resemble lips around his unnaturally thin slit of a mouth. The man asked Hopkins several questions regarding the UFO abduction case he was working on, and he never gave the doctor any additional information like he had promised to do on the phone. When Hopkins persisted and asked why the man had come if he had no further evidence that could help the case, the man in black changed the subject. The man told Hopkins to remove one of the two coins he had in his pocket. Hopkins wondered how he could have known that, but he reached into his pocket nonetheless and was surprised to find that he indeed did have exactly two coins in it. He withdrew one, a penny. The MIB told Hopkins to hold the coin in the palm of his hand and watch it closely. As he did, the coin began to glow, first silver, then blue. Then, right before the doctor's eyes, the coin vanished. As Dr. Hopkins stared at his now empty hand, the man in black asked him if he had ever heard of Barney Hill. Barney Hill was one half of the Betty and Barney Hill case, which is one of the earliest documented UFO abduction cases. Dr. Hopkins said he had and that he knew that Hill had recently died. The man in black said, Correct. The same thing that just happened to that coin happened to Barney Hill's heart. It will happen to yours if you do not stop investigating the UFO abduction case you are working on. At this point, the man in black stood, 
but he wavered and stumbled. His voice dragged and slurred as he said, My energy is running low now. Must go. Goodbye. The man stumbled out through the front door. Hopkins watched him stagger across the street and vanish into a dense hedge where he saw a bright blue light through the leaves and he never saw the man again. That night, Dr. Hopkins burned all of his UFO abduction research and hypnosis session notes. The next day, he resigned from his consulting position with the police department and he never did any UFO research again. Dr. Herbert Hopkins also discovered that the New Jersey UFO research organization that the man in black had mentioned never existed. One afternoon in 1968, a 16-year-old girl named Adele was home alone in the seaside town of Scarborough, North Yorkshire in England. She heard a knock on the door and opened it to see a strange man in a black suit and tie, black hat, you know the uniform by now. He stared at the girl in silence for what she said was an unusually long time and she began to close the door. At that moment, he asked the girl if she had insurance. She said he should come back when her parents were home and he began to drip with sweat. He spoke again. May I see a glass of water? He asked. The girl thought it was an awkward way to ask, but she closed the door, got a glass of water, then went back to the door and handed it to the man. He stepped inside the house as she did so. He looked at the glass of water for a minute but never drank any. He put the glass down on the mantelpiece and stared at the clock there. Adele told him the clock was her father's retirement gift. Is it your father's time? Is it here and now? The girl didn't understand and asked the man to leave. The man had become stiff. He had to use his hands to move one of his legs, and in this strange manner he made his way to the door. As he exited the house, he turned to the girl and said, Watch the lights. Watch the lights. Watch the lights. Jim Templeton, who took a famous photo called the Soloway Firth Spaceman in 1964, was visited by men in black. Most UFO researchers have seen the photograph. It's a photo of his daughter in a grassy field with what looks to be a silvery white 1960s type spaceman in the background and all who were there say they saw no such man that day. The spaceman in the photo has been determined and pretty conclusively shown through analysis to be the washed out, overexposed image of the man's wife, the girl's mother, facing away from the photo subject with gleaming sunshine causing glare on her hair and her dress. You can look at other photographs from the day that show the woman more clearly and you can see where the sleeves of her dress line up to the sleeves that you can barely see in the washed out image behind the girl. But at the time, no one knew what it was, and Templeton took the photo to the police, but there wasn't much they could do about it, and they determined that there was no crime to investigate, just a weird picture. So the man then sold the photo to the newspaper. 
It was after the picture was published that Jim Templeton got a visit from two men in black who drove a black car and identified themselves as number 9 and number 10 when Jim asked their names. They insisted that he ride with them to the location of the photo, which he did. Once there, the men asked Jim to show them where the alleged spaceman was standing when he took the photo. He told them he never saw anyone else there until the picture was developed. At that point, the men in black got angry, muttered some unintelligible language that Jim couldn't understand, but that he said sounded like cursing. Then they got in their car and left him stranded there. UFO researcher and founder of the International Flying Saucer Bureau, Albert Bender, started publishing stories and his own research results in his magazine called Space Review in 1952. Late one night, Bender awoke in his bed to find three men in black in his bedroom. The men told him to stop publishing Space Review and to dissolve the IFSB, which he did. But he did go on to write about the experience in his 1962 book, Flying Saucers and the Three Men. This book, as well as the previously mentioned They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers by Gray Barker, are responsible for most of the men in black lore that we know of today. In fact, declassified documents have recently revealed that J. Edgar Hoover himself personally requested a copy of Barker's book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. I think, though, it was because in that book, Barker writes that Albert Bender claimed that one or more of his MIB visitors were from the FBI, and Hoover wasn't having it. Moving into the more current time frame, famous actor Dan Aykroyd also had an encounter with the men in black. In 2002, Aykroyd was in New York City working on a television show about UFOs he had created for the sci-fi channel called Out There. His production company had created episodes, sold the show to the sci-fi network, and he was there filming interviews for the show launch. Dan went downstairs and out onto the street on the corner of 42nd Street and 8th Avenue to make a phone call and to have a smoke. While he was on the phone, he saw a black Ford sedan with men inside parked across the street. One man dressed in classic men in black clothes got out of the back seat, stood in the middle of 42nd Street, and gave Dan what he called a dirty look. Dan said the man was huge. Dan looked away for about half a second, and when he looked back, the car and the men were gone. The black car and the men in black had completely vanished. They had not pulled into traffic or done a U-turn and moved in the opposite direction. The men and the car had simply disappeared in seconds. Ackroyd made his way back up to the studio, and he was shocked to be told that the show had been canceled. There was no explanation, and Dan never found out why or exactly who had made the decision, and the show was the property of the network, so that was the end of his UFO show. IMDB lists the show as being canceled due to creative differences. They say the network wanted a comedy show, and Ackroyd wanted a serious show. But according to Aykroyd, 26 episodes were filmed. 
wouldn't they have come to terms about the general tone of the show, serious or comedy, long before filming 26 episodes? In any case, none of the episodes have ever been released. I heard Dan tell this story on late night AM radio to Art Bell once again and it felt like he was truly confused by the experience. Ironic that one of Dan Aykroyd's most famous movie roles was Elwood Blues in The Blues Brothers, where he and John Belushi dressed like men in black to sing the blues and save the orphanage on a mission from God. Speaking of Art Bell, on Coast to Coast AM, 24 July 1994, Art Bell interviewed the author of Case Book on Men in Black, Jim Keith. It's an excellent episode, as are all of the Art Bell Coast to Coast episodes. I'll link to it in the Dark Intel files on Patreon. On that episode of Coast to Coast AM, Art takes a listener call who asks Jim Keith how many of the threats to not talk about something made by the many MIB encounters the author has studied are ever followed through. So how often do the men in black make good on their threats if someone does go on to run their mouth about the UFOs or whatever? I thought that was such a great question, and so did Art Bell. Jim Keith's answer was, to paraphrase, surprisingly, none that I've ever heard of or know about. But then Art Bell said, yeah, but you may just not know, and Keith said that's true. Then Art Bell said, dead men tell no tales. Awesome. Art Bell is a legend. In 2008, hotel manager Shane Sovar and a hotel security guard saw a large triangular-shaped UFO from the grounds of their hotel at Niagara Falls. Sovar reported the sighting to the Aerial Phenomenon Investigations Team at aerial-phenomenon.org. And that's a pretty credible UFO reporting site that has no qualms about closing cases as identified when they find mundane explanations. But they're also willing to stand behind instances of unexplained flying objects. After Sovar and the security guard made the report, two classic men in black showed up at the hotel looking for them. The two UFO witnesses weren't there when the men in black arrived, but the spook's terrified guests were described as having identical faces, no hair or eyebrows, thin or non-existent lips, and being tall, rude, and threatening. The hotel security cameras caught what is arguably the most famous men in black footage ever captured. In the short, silent security video, you can see two men in black stride into this hotel. The footage is pretty cool. I'll put the best, cleanest clip I can find on our Patreon page. A huge thanks to you if you are a Renegade Files agent on Patreon. It helps me do the show and keeps it ad-free, so thank you. MIB Theories Okay, here's where we get to go off the rails and dive deep into some hardcore weirdness. One of the main theories that swims around in the murky waters of the conspiracy internet is that the men in black are actually some kind of alien presence or projection, and they're sent to clean up after certain sightings or abductions go off track or are seen by people who then know too much. 
this has been fostered due in a large part, I believe, by the odd descriptions of the men in black so often seeming to be imitating people more than behaving like people. They have painted on lips and no hair or eyebrows. They wear gloves and have extra long fingers. They don't know what a pen is or what a clock is or how to open a door. They ask for water so they can look at it when they're thirsty. One seriously bizarre story comes from a couple who were the daughter and son-in-law of UFO researcher and men in black target, Dr. Herbert Hopkins. Remember he was the one who watched the penny disappear? His daughter received a phone call from someone who said they knew her father and asked if they could come visit. Her husband picked this person up in a nearby restaurant. He was apparently a man in black and he was with a rare woman in black both dressed essentially the same. The man and the woman walked in very short steps and their joints moved in jerky motions almost as if they were puppets on strings. Once at the couple's home, the two sat on their couch and the man in black put his arm around the woman in black and asked the couple if he was doing it right. The man in black asked Hopkins' daughter how she was made. He asked them if they ever watched television. At one point, the man and woman in black got up and walked around the room looking at paintings and objects like lamps with great curiosity. As the two tried to move around the couple's house, they found it difficult because they could only walk in straight lines. So they had to constantly back up, turn in small steps, then walk forward again to go around tables or corners. Soon, this odd couple returned to the couch and sat. After several more minutes of the man and woman in black asking the couple strange personal questions, the two people in black got up and left without saying goodbye or anything else. They bumped into each other as the man struggled to open the door. The couple watched the two walk to the curb and get into the back seat of an old black sedan with no driver and the car pulled away, none of them ever to be seen again. This whole socially awkward behavior is classic men in black. That and the consistently just slightly off normal physical appearances have given rise to the theory that the men in black are aliens impersonating humans. The MIBs often show up after a UFO witness has told no one, and they always seem to know all the details about the sighting. This has also added to the idea that the men in black are somehow in cahoots with the aliens, or are indeed the aliens themselves. One of the most widely agreed upon theories about the men in black is that they are just government agents from some alphabet soup department and they are trying to learn about the UFO phenomenon or cover it up or both. Dark ops agents given the job of hushing up secret military aircrafts or experimental technologies rank pretty high on the list of people who might dress and act like some of the main characters in many men in black tales. But many of the stories recounted to us by people who have been in close contact with MIBs involve paranormal facets as well. To me, that's part of what makes the whole thing so creepy. The subtlety. 
we aren't talking about a supernatural skinwalker or a howling Bigfoot. These are people, only they aren't quite right for small reasons. Sure, there are people with no hair or with thin lips. The guy selling hot dogs on the corner might be extremely pale. The person next to you in line at the airport might ask awkward questions. But when you put all of these things together into a person who can't work a door, has never seen a pen, who rides in a 70-year-old car that looks brand new, dresses like a detective from the 40s, and threatens you with your life, it gets a little scary. Another theory involves time travel, or multi-dimensional movement. Some suggest that the men in black are traveling through time and that in doing so have chosen to wear generic clothes, the classic black suit and white shirt ensemble, because it can basically blend into a wide range of time periods, at least from the 1940s when the UFO phenomenon started to heat up until the present day. Wayne Green, the publisher of several magazines including the computer magazines 80 Micro and Byte, suggested that the MIBs could be a cleanup crew from the future, sent back to adjust or try to control some event that could have altered the timeline. Getting deep. Deeper still is the theory that the MIBs are genetically engineered replicants of some sort, created by some dark deep state project, and used as muscle to keep certain sightings of exotic technology from spreading too far. This explains how the men in black know so much about the encounters when witnesses haven't told anyone, how they know who to come to because they are surveilling the areas and the roadways and the neighborhoods where the experiments are taking place, but they never seem to really do anything about it, even when the witnesses do go on to talk about what they saw, even as far as writing books and going on TV or radio. Why not? This leads me into another theory. I think it's possible, and maybe even more realistic than some of the theories we've covered so far, that what's happening here is predicated by the time frame we're talking about with most of, or at least the initial, Men in Black encounters that kicked the whole thing off. Hold tight now, because this gets fun. The first Men in Black sightings coincide precisely with the first landmark UFO cases of the U.S. The Kenneth Arnold sighting happened just three days before the Maury Island UFO event, which spawned the first documented Men in Black encounter of modern American times. The Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting was reported by a credible pilot. It was the first post-World War II UFO story and it's the sighting that gave us the term flying saucer. Then, just days after the Maury Island event when molten metal rained on boat captain Dahl and his makeshift crew, we have the Roswell crash and its alleged cover-up. So this is primetime Cold War paranoia and nuclear war apprehension on a wide scale. I think it's possible that, at least in some cases, 
The men in black were governmental military intelligence agents investigating the witnesses to UFO sightings in the process of national security to try to ascertain if whatever these people were seeing could be Soviet technology being used for spying or for weapons positioning or who knows what. That the government or military didn't know what the UFOs were any more than anyone else. And these agents, these men in black, were also vetting the witnesses to see if they had anything to do with or knew anything about whatever UFOs people were seeing and that were buzzing pilots and crashing all over the place all of a sudden. To see if these witnesses had any information about some unknown enemy aircraft or technology. It's just a theory, but I think it's at least as plausible as some of the others. my summary. The Men in Black phenomenon is fascinating. The stories are pretty consistent. There doesn't seem to be any definitive answer, so that parks it right in the middle of the parking lot of the Unsolved Mystery Mall. I think what we have is some early Cold War spooks who showed up to find out what these UFO sightings were all about and the people they were visiting in many cases were extremely paranoid already, Bender in particular. Then the guys writing those stories and others were gifted storytellers who were publishing science fiction and they added to the tales. But what's weird about it is that the stories persist. The men in black are almost always the same right up to the guys that were filmed at the hotel at Niagara Falls and the story from Dan Aykroyd. There is something strange going on here. As stories pass through the years, they become more and more embellished. Stories of the paranormal are particularly prone to this. Mix the paranormal with the undercover side of the government and you can count on getting into some wild territory. One of the strangest aspects of the Men in Black is that for all of their creepy behavior and threatening messages, they seem to do little physical harm, if any. Their bark is worse than their bite. But it could be, as Art Bell said, dead men tell no tales. But that reminds me of another pirate reference. In the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, Curse of the Black Pearl, the pirates in the jail fear for their lives when they realize the Black Pearl is attacking the settlement. They think they're doomed because, as one pirate says, It's the Black Pearl. I've heard stories. She's been preying on ships and settlements for near ten years. Never leaves any survivors. To which Jack Sparrow retorts, No survivors. And where do the stories come from, I wonder? The men in black are similar to that. We have tons of stories where men in black tell people to never talk about the UFO they saw. Then those people go on to talk about how the UFO they saw instigated the threat from the men in black. But not every story is that. Some of the weirdest ones aren't. Dan Aykroyd, the couple visited by the MIB, WIB couple. The MIBs filmed at the Niagara Falls Hotel. 
So something fishy and consistent has been going on for decades, and whatever it is, there are UFOs, clandestine government programs, and paranormal appearances and behaviors all mixed into it. Which brings me to my final observation on the men in black. Notice how you can scarcely say the phrase men in black without picturing Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones holding up that little memory eraser gizmo? The film series was based on a comic book. The Men in Black comic book series was created by Lowell Cunningham and Sandy Carruthers and published by Air Cell Comics, which was sold to Malibu Comics, which was then sold to Marvel Comics, which is why the Men in Black movies are credited as being based on the Marvel comic book series, which legally speaking is true, but creatively speaking is nonsense. It's like the guy at the car show who bought a fully restored 1967 Mustang Shelby GT500, put an Eleanor license plate on the front, and pretends that he rebuilt it himself after finding it in a barn. The point is that the Men in Black movie franchise is what I have termed a pop culture smokescreen. We'll do a whole episode on pop culture smokescreens because there are many, but in the case of the MIBs, these movies are textbook. The established mainstream media in their movie production divisions create a parody of a legitimate paranormal experience, and by virtue of their wide reach and deep promotion, flood the information highways with their film's images, links, actor off-screen drama, and box office blockbuster streaming. Anyone searching for Men in Black has to dig way past pictures of Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones in dark sunglasses looking serious. It's not that the movies aren't entertaining, or that the actors and the entire machine deployed to create and promote the movies has any clue or even opinion either way about the real Men in Black. It's just an example of the mainstream media giants picking something initially made by independent creators then using it to confuse a potentially paranormal or conspiratorial movement with parody. Look for the Renegade Files pop culture smokescreen episode coming soon to a podcast app near you. You could even say that anytime you see a fringe idea that gets the pop culture smokescreen treatment, that's a clue that the alternative media is on to something. Men in Black have been skulking around since Roswell. They show up to creep people out after something happens that creeped them out already. They are a combination of myth, occult symbolism, Big Brother, and alien shapeshifter. No wonder it's hard to pen them down. If you see the Men in Black, stand your ground. Zigzag. Agree to say nothing then email me at info at therenegadefiles.com and tell me all about it. That's Renegade Files episode 23, The Men in Black, Case Closed. agent by joining us on patreon for bonus episodes tons of paranormal content mp3s of episode background music 
and to interact with me and other Renegade Files fans on a secure private platform that also helps me make the show and deliver it to you without ads. Thanks for going on this ride. I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, Raven Child. <laughs>